0: And pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, well this week I bring you an Aussie case and it's a really nasty, disgusting and exploitative case where a woman will lose her life at the hands of a serial scumbag. So tonight I will reference ABC.net.au, the University of Sydney, news.com.au, the Daily Mail, Court and Coroner's Records, And I will read directly from these at times, and as usual, like I say, I just change them around just for the flow, so it makes a bit more sense. Okay, before we get started, I'm giving away a t-shirt on my YouTube channel to celebrate the 1,000th subscriber. Check out the video to enter, sub, and leave a comment to get there to enter it. I'll draw, I can hear the cat, I don't know if you did. I'll draw it a week or so after the 1000 subs are reached, which will be very soon. Also, the hot pink logo promo t-shirts have shipped and thanks to everyone that brought one. Okay, so tonight we go to, I guess you could say Outback Daniloquin, New South Wales, locally known as Denny. It's a It's a town in the Riverina region of New South Wales, close to the border with Victoria. It's about 700 odd kilometres southwest or from Sydney or about a seven and a half hour drive, depending how fast you go. Back in the day, it was a real it was real Bush Ranger territory with the likes of the Kelly gang doing business, so to speak, around the area. Now, I'd just like to say that there will be some derogatory terms mentioned tonight, so that's just a little warning, but I am just reading those out-of-court records. Daniliquin. Daniliquin will be where the initial part of the case will be centred around, and it's here that on August the second, 1955, that Janet Ann Neander would be born at the Daniliquin Hospital, she was the second of seven children to Len and Val Neander. Janet met Frank Fiscaro on a, a, a local potato and sheep farmer and a Vietnam vet in 1979, becoming engaged to him on Christmas Day in 1980. They were married on the 13th of May 1982 when she was aged 26 years. At the time of her marriage, she moved from the Neander family home to their property known as Hillview. Now, that's about a 10-minute drive from the Deniliquin Township. Frank and Janet had their one and only son, Stephen. He was born in July 1983. Now, Frank died suddenly from a heart attack on the family property on the 30th of October 1997. After Frank's death, Janet moved back into town and stayed with family members. The property known as Hillview was placed on the market and sold, And Janet purchased a house at 101 Macaulay Street, Daniloquin. Now, Janet led led a very full life. She had a love of visiting family and friends. She enjoyed her work and enjoyed socialising at the local RSL club. That's the Returned Servicemen's League club with friends and family members. She came from a very close-knit family whose members appear to have been affectionate towards each other They kept each other informed about events going on in their lives and they offered each other support, guidance and advice in times of need. Now, Janet was employed at the Daniloquin Hospital as well as the Community Health Centre as a domestic in the Catering and Housekeeping Department. Now, this next bit isn't nasty, but it's important to understand the whole story of what is going to go on. Okay, now... Janet was described by some as simple and of being of below-average intelligence, a little bit slow, so to speak. Now, she didn't play sport, participate in any exercise activities or like camping. She had a fear of height and she hated the dark. Now, when Frank died, he left a gross estate at that time, including the property known as Hillview, with an estimated value of six hundred and sixty-four thousand three hundred and fifty-two dollars and fifteen cents, together with further interest in a jointly owned property known as Sand Hills, and a bank account with the St. George Bank Unite uh, Limited, with Janet being the other joint owner of those assets. Now, Sand Hills, by the way, was the original name of Daniloquent. There you go. Those further assets, they were worth around $87,800. And other than a lump sum of $10,000 left to Frank's sister, Camilla, Janet became the sole beneficiary on the 15th of January 1998 to those assets. Now in country towns, well, anywhere I suppose, gossip gets around. People know each other's business and Janet was known as a very wealthy widow. Now, this is where we meet, and Janet would also meet Desmond, or Des Campbell. He was born on the 21st of November, 1957. He enlisted in the Australian Army on the 12th of March, 1980, and was discharged, having resigned, on the 29th of January, 1985. Now, we have to go a bit through this in relation to this Des Campbell guy, And most of it's not good, and I'll be reading a lot directly from the coroner's transcript. Again, changed and edited for flow. In the Army, he achieved the rank of second lieutenant. During the course of his training with the Army, he undertook a basic parachute course. He reckoned that he was the commander of a platoon of 33 paratroopers and a member of that paratrooper team whilst doing service with the Army. On the 19th of August 1985, Campbell was sworn in as a police officer with the Victorian Police Force. He was promoted to the rank of Senior Constable on the 20th of December 1990 and resigned from the Victorian Police Force on the 17th of November 1994. By that date, Campbell had been married twice, with his second marriage being to Gwendolyn Collin. She was a fellow police officer and there was one child from his marriage. Now, Campbell had been suspended without pay on the 16th of November 1994, so he resigned the day after. Now, according to police records, Campbell had travelled overseas extensively during 1989 through to 1992. Countries and cities visited included Hong Kong and England, Manila and Los Angeles. Whilst a member of the Victorian Police Force, a number of disciplinary allegations were made against Des Campbell. After leaving the Victorian police force, Campbell gave interviews to a journalist associated with the Herald Sun. Now, Campbell described how racism, corruption, bashing victims, fabricating charges, planning drugs on suspects and other corrupt activity was allegedly a common practice in the Victorian drug squad. In a second publication dated the 18th of June 2000, Campbell told how violence and the fabrication of evidence Were everyday events. Now, Campbell then moved to England and was employed by the Surrey Police on the 5th of June 1995, notwithstanding the fact that there had been disciplinary charges which had been laid against him by the Victorian Police. And he then resigned from the Surrey Police on the 1st of July 1998, prior to a disciplinary hearing against him commencing at the behest of the Surrey Police. Now, we're getting a bit of a theme here. While he was a member of the British Police Service, he again became a subject of disciplinary proceedings as a result of, amongst other things, an allegation of indecent assault being made against him by the victim who was then a young woman who met the police constable Campbell when he attended a domestic incident that the female was involved in. This meeting resulted in the victim and Police Constable Campbell meeting a few days later. Now, during the course of that meeting, the victim alleges that she was the subject of sexual assault perpetrated upon her by Campbell. Now, as a result of that incident, Campbell was suspended from work. He was arrested and interviewed about the allegation. The case was submitted to the Crown Prosecution Service, who decided that there was insufficient evidence to proceed as there was no corroborative evidence. The victim, it seems, refused to allow her parents to be interviewed, making it impossible for the authorities to obtain any evidence of an early complaint. However, during the course of that investigation, other matters emerged. There was evidence to suggest that he had committed a number of disciplinary offences And he was served with notices in relation to 15 breaches of police disciplinary regulations. Now, one instance included that of contacting a prosecution witness. In addition, the police force also, at a later point of time, received correspondence from a debt collection agency indicating that it was trying to recover the sum of 1,813 pounds and 29 pence owed to a financial institution. ...by Police Constable Campbell. Chief Superintendent Kevin DeNice of the Surrey Police was interviewed by Investigating Police. In his statement, the Chief Superintendent indicated that in the time when Desmond Campbell was a constable at the Surrey Police, he monitored his work. This led him to have continuing concerns regarding Constable Campbell's attitude and behaviour... He became aware that Desmond Campbell had been involved with several women, including the wife of a fellow police officer who was also stationed at the same police station as Desmond Campbell. This led to a situation between the two, between the two officers deteriorating to such an extent that the chief superintendent was forced to change the duties of the police officers to avoid any trouble within the police station. Also, during the process of checking Campbell's work, it became apparent to the Chief Superintendent that Campbell was targeting females. In addition to his concerns that Campbell Campbell was targeting lone and vulnerable females, several other constables came to the Chief Superintendent with their concerns regarding his attitude and professionalism. This led to the Chief Superintendent deciding to conduct an informal investigation into Campbell in order to confirm or refute this then serious concerns. It was within within days of having made such a decision that the information was received by the Chief Superintendent relating to the female member of the public who wanted to make the serious complaint against Police Constable Campbell. It was this complaint which related to the indecent assault which she alleged was perpetrated upon her by Campbell which led to his later arrest. Now throughout this period of time as a police constable Campbell's superior Chief Superintendent Dinas found him to be an officer with very few friends and not respected by his colleagues who made it clear that they did not wish to work with him. His attitude upset members of the public and often his attitude was a catalyst which sparked minor breaches of the public order law. On that basis, the Chief Superintendent determined to take steps to have Campbell removed from the Surrey Police Service. But before he could sack him, Campbell resigned. Funny that, he did that to Victorian coppers. Anyway, Campbell ended up back in Australia, and he got a job with the AMBOS, the Ambulance Service. So the Ambulance Service in New South Wales records, they indicate that Campbell commenced his service with the Ambulance Service on the 18th of January 1999. He undertook Level 1 training at St Ives from the 10th of April 1999 to the 4th of February 2000. There was then then a Level 2 posting at Deniliquin from the 5th of February 2000 until the 5th of April 2002. And from the 6th of April 2002 to the 29th of November 2002, he was transferred to the Sydney Operations Centre. Now, in November 2002 until June 2003, he transferred to Baham. And from June 2003 until December 2004, was transferred to Daniliquin. On the 18th of December... 2004, he transferred to Helensburg for holding the rank of Grade 2 Ambulance Officer Year 4 with a qualification level of 3C. Sorry about all those dates there, but he's, he's, this does make uh, relevant sense in the whole scheme of thing? Now, this Des Campbell, he sounds like a real asshole. He's got no friends. Workmates don't like him. And don't want to work with him. He targets lonely and vulnerable female and assaults them. And it looks like he has financial troubles. As a cop, it looks like he's a real prick. Getting suspended and having to resign. When he did leave the the Victorian police force, he was happy to then tell the media how corrupt they were. As I mentioned this before. Nice bloke. Now, while working as an ambo in Daniloquin, Campbell would meet Janet probably while she was working at the hospital. We know this because Janet confided in Diane Rinaldi, a co-worker, that she was seeing a man and that that man was Desmond Campbell. Now, Diane Rinaldi tried to warn Janet of Desmond Campbell. Others who found out about her relation relationship also tried to warn her. So it looks like Campbell's reputation had got around. Now Janet kept this relationship on the quiet, not letting her family members and even Stephen, her son, know about it. Now I suspect this was because Campbell wanted it kept secretive rather than Janet and that's for a variety of reasons. First, Campbell would be seeing other women. Secondly, he was trying to get money out of Janet. And third, he didn't find Janet particularly attractive. Now, before we get into some of the women that Campbell was seeing while in this relationship with Janet, we need to go over a few of the things that went on between them. Now, first, now there are some nasty bits here. This first bit pertains to when his boss found out about his engagement to Janet. Now, Campbell said that she was a fat, ugly slut, that she was chasing him, texting him, phoning him, and that he was sick of it. He was going to, if she kept it up, take out an AVO against her, kick her up the ass, and tell her to fuck off. Now, this wasn't the only person he would tell that he wasn't involved with Janet or spoke about her in derogatory terms, but this wasn't true at all because they were married in a Duke of Victoria on the 17th of September 2004. No guests were present at the wedding, and at Campbell's request, the celebrant arranged two witnesses to attend the ceremony. Janet didn't even tell her family about the wedding. Things are getting really weird here. Now, Janet has her property in Daniloquin, and she would put it up, to sale, up for sale to buy a place that Campbell wanted at 49 Station Street, Oxford. The Deniliquin Place would sell in November 2004 for $269,000. The Oxford property property was purchased for $660,000. Janet paid a holding deposit of $1,660. The balance of the deposit, $64,350. That was on the 8th of November. And also the stamp duty, $25,194. Then later in February 2005, $50,000 to reduce what was owing on the mortgage over the Otford residence. So Campbell wasn't putting any, any of his money into this, not that he had any, and he did try to get Janet to put it in his name, the property in his name, telling her that he could claim relocation money from the ambulance service for a majority of that stamp duty paid. Apparently, he wasn't actually entitled to it because he hadn't met certain criteria. But he appealed the decision on of his application, and he was given $19,333.20 out of that stamp duty amount of $25,194. So he was given most of that back. Now, he should have paid that money back to Janet, but he kept it to pay off some of his own debts. In fact, while we're here, let's go through some of the weird financial transactions between Janet and Campbell. On the first of October, first uh, of April, two thousand four, Janet withdrew two thousand five hundred from her account and deposited deposited it into Campbell's account. On the seventh of June, two thousand and four, Janet withdrew twenty three thousand dollars from an investment account and deposited into Campbell's account. Now, she told her financial advisor that the money was to repay a loan on a property at Castle, Maine, where Campbell's parents lived. She said the property was in Campbell's name. Now, there was no such property and there was no such loan. Campbell's parents didn't receive any money and those funds were used to reduce credit card debts owed by Campbell. Upon the sale of Janet's house in Daniloquin, The proceeds of that went directly into Campbell's account. He used approximately $25,000 more to pay off more of his debts. On the 22nd of October 2004, Janet and Campbell signed a National Bank loan application. Now, Campbell listed his assets as $2,100 and a car. And Janet's assets were listed as a home valued at $280,000, a $250,000 investment account, and a car. The ambulance service, remember, they reimbursed $19,000-odd for the stamp duty, which I mentioned before. On the 4th of January 2005, Campbell purchased a motorbike and transferred $3,500 from his account's his account by way of internet transfer on the same day there was another internet transfer of five thousand dollars this of course is money from janet's house sale that's sitting in his account throughout april and may 2005 campbell withdrew an amount totaling seventy thousand 000 from the joint mortgage account held by him and held by him and janet and placed part of the money in his own bank account and used it to pay off his credit cards now, this 70000 this is after Janet's death. Campbell received by way of benefit from his relationship with Janet both before and after her death. Well, we haven't even got up to her death yet, but I, the way I've got to tell this, it's a bit out of order, but the the amount of benefit he got with being with Janet, the monetary amount totaled $325,202. Now, this didn't include the benefit he would attain from the sale of the Otford resident residence, and under Janet's will, it was estimated that if this these amounts were included, the monetary benefit would total four hundred and sixty-seven thousand seven hundred and thirty-six dollars. But, but say he had divorced Janet in March of two thousand and five, Campbell would be expected to receive through a negotiated settlement or court order, between 0 and 5% of their total assets. So that's maybe $20,000. So at the point we get to March, I know we haven't got there yet, but at the point of March where Janet dies, if he divorces her, he gets maybe $20,000. If something else happens, he gets virtually half a million dollars. So there you go. There's a bit of a motivation factor there. And like I said, we sidetracked here there a bit. Now let's get back to some of the women Campbell was involved with. The first one was before he met Janet, but she's very relevant. And then the, the other ones were while he was in a relationship with Janet. Now it is a long case, this one tonight. But without this detail, you don't get to find what an absolute scumbag this guy is is. So the first one is Miss Ingham. Now Campbell met Miss Ingham while in England being a corrupt cop, crooked cop, a bad cop in 1997. She would visit him twice in Australia in 1999 and in 2000. Then in 2001 Miss Ingham was speaking to Campbell about a property settlement from her previous marriage. That went ding 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 for old Campbell. Campbell had been telling her that he wanted to marry her for the last few months and you can imagine what he thought when she told him about the property settlement anyway miss ingham made plans to go back to australia to see campbell for a third time on the 4th of april 2001 miss ingham was picked up by campbell from melbourne airport she thought she was going to spend the rest of her life with this guy and later that night campbell became very angry when Miss Ingham told him how much money she had actually received from the property settlement. Now, the amount she she got was only £28,000. Now, Campbell said it wasn't as much as she was supposed to get. He called her a fucking liar and a slag, and Campbell didn't speak to her for the rest of the evening. This is someone who's just come out from England to stay with him, live with him forever he's thinking oh yeah it's probably 100,000 pounds or whatever oh, oh by the time there's I split it with my old husband and we paid off the bank and that's only 28,000 pounds he didn't like it fuck fucking liar Campbell he just didn't speak to her for the rest of the evening anyway the next day Campbell drove her from the hotel they'd stayed back to the airport and left her there they're like get out of the fucking car Now, Miss Ingham went to a hotel and later that night, Campbell called and apologised to Miss Ingham. He said he would return the next day to Melbourne by bus. Campbell also started talking about how he wanted a sports car. So, she's only got 28 grand. What can I get for 28 grand? Hey, how about a sports car? Anyway, (laughs) he gets one. Campbell came back to Melbourne the next day. He and Miss Ingham went to one car dealership, which Campbell had found, and decided to buy a Lotus Esprit. Es- es- Esprit. A Lotus es- you know the little Lotus cars. Miss Ingham paid for the sports car using money from her property settlement. Now, this car cost $63,000. Campbell contributed 5700 by way of credit card to help her pay for the car. Now, get this, Miss Ingham then told Campbell, oh, look, I'll pay you back for that seven and a half you've had to put on your credit card for your car. And on the 4th of May, 2001, she did. She paid him back. And also, she gave him an extra $1,100. What the fuck? Anyway, a month later, he sells the car for 60 grand. He tells her he got 50,000 for it and sticks the money in his bank. He tells her they should buy a house together with the money from the car, and it should be in his name, this house, as she wasn't a resident. Now, Miss Ingham found a house which she agreed to buy in June 2001 for $148,500. Now, Campbell used some of the money from the car as a deposit, and also he got what the government gives people their first home owner's bonus. Now, this was from the government for $7,000. On the 27th of December 2001, Miss Ingham, she travelled to England to say goodbye to her family and pack up and send all her stuff over to Australia. Now, when in England, Miss Ingham packed all her belongings up, she shipped them to Australia, and she said whilst in England her telephone calls with Campbell got shorter and shorter, and then he started not to call her back. On the 15th of February, 2002, she received a text message which said, I'm sorry, but I'm moving to live with my ex-wife and Jess. We'll sell house and send you money. Post me address for your things to be sent. Have mine made my mind up to do this. What the fuck? Now, he sold the house for $150,000, approximately what was paid, then Miss Ingham had to obtain a solicitor to try and help recover the money from the sale of the house as Campbell didn't respond to her text messages. Now she sought to recover about 40000 from Campbell. Now Campbell said he was going to post the things back but she didn't get anything except for one photo album. Then Miss Ingham subsequently discovered in her legal proceedings against Campbell that he'd sold the house for 150000 and after paying the bank back What was owed, Campbell received $22,694.99. Miss Ingham settled her proceedings against Campbell for a measly $9,000. Fuck. So that was before Janet came on the scene. But I think it's very relevant in the whole scheme of things of what this asshole Campbell is. Okay, so the second woman we're going to talk about is Ms. Velikansky, and I'll call her Miss V from now on so my tongue doesn't fall out my head. In 2003, Miss V received an email from Campbell on the website udate.com. Around 10 or 11 of September 2003, Campbell went with Ms. Ms. V and stayed a couple of nights at Budgie Woi. They then travelled to Sydney and spent the evening at the Ibis Hotel at Sydney Airport, They fought, but subsequently Campbell sent a card and teddy bear to Miss V and asked to continue the friendship. They continued to send regular emails. Get a sort of pattern here. Fight, be violent, and then he's all apologetic. Yep. On the 9th of December 2003, Miss V flew to Albury and stayed in Daniloquin with Campbell for two or three days. After that trip, they remained in contact in February 2004. Campbell drove to Budgie Woy to stay with Miss V for approximately two weeks. Both in Deniliquin and in Budgie Miss V had sex with Campbell. Following the stay in Budgie Miss v-, v and Campbell had regular contact, speaking on the telephone on a daily basis. Campbell told her he loved her. Now, this relationship and all the rest of them while he is with Janet, he's engaged with Janet and he's getting married with Janet and some of it when he is married with Janet. Between February and April 2004, Miss V went and saw Campbell in Albury and they had an argument, so she returned to Sydney. Miss V did not have much contact with Campbell until November 2004 when she received a text message from him asking her to come on a trip with him to Cam- to Townsville. Now, Campbell visited Miss V in Budgieway from 17 to 20 of November. Miss V asked Campbell if he had any other girlfriends since seeing her in April. And Campbell replied, only one local sheep. Miss V next met with Campbell on 20 or 21st of December 2004 at a hotel in Darling Harbour. Campbell told her he'd bought a house at Otford for $660,000 was going to move into it in February 2005. Yeah, wasn't his money, but yet the house wasn't a lie. He didn't tell her that he was already living at the house at the time. He later asked if she would trust him and go away with him for a few weeks without asking questions. He later invited Miss V to come and stay in Otford. You see, when the Otford property was first purchased... Janet didn't live there straight away. She sort of was there. She had some stuff there, all that stuff, sort of thing, but she was living with a family back in Deniloquan. Miss V went to the offered residence on the 29th of December 2004 after being asked by a neighbour, Mr Wilmot, if she was Janet. She later asked Campbell who Janet was. He said she was a friend of his who came with a boyfriend to look at the house. He's always got an answer. Then Miss V went to see Campbell in Otford again in February 2005 between the 2nd and 12th and the 16th of March. Now, in March, whilst Miss V was at the Otford residence, Campbell said that a friend was coming from Tamworth to go camping with him. He said he was going to do an ambulance service course in Goulburn for six weeks. So Miss V would not be able to contact him, which of course was total bullshit. There was no course, there was no Goulburn, there was nothing. He was going to do something very, very nasty. Campbell didn't tell Miss V anything about a woman named Janet or that he was intending to get and later had got married. Next woman, Miss Janet Aldred. Miss Aldred met Campbell in October 2002 on a dating website RSVP and UDate. Campbell stayed at Miss Aldred's home in Sutherland a couple of weeks later and they had an intermittent contact via email and phone. Sometime around the end of 2004, Miss Aldred visited Campbell at the Otford residence for two or three days. She also stayed with Campbell for three days, either on the 15th or 22nd of March 2005. While staying at the Oxford residence, Miss Aldred went and collected a parcel from the post office for Campbell. Now, on the back of this parcel, it said, From Janet. On each occasion she met Campbell, they had a sexual relationship. There you go. Now, Miss... <laughs> I think this is the last woman we're going to talk about. Miss Linda Rogers. In May 2004... Miss Rogers re-established contact with Campbell, a former boyfriend. Miss Rogers visited Campbell in Berrigan a few weeks after making first contact. She stayed the weekend with Campbell and had sexual relationship with him. Campbell asked her to stay with him and leave her husband. Jesus Christ! In the June school holidays of 2004, Miss Rogers visited Campbell at Deniloquin and stayed for four nights. They also met up in Melbourne. On that occasion, Campbell spent more than $1,000 on drink, dinner and drinks. Hey, look, I'll take the, the tab. But it wasn't his money. It's never his money. In October, they ceased to have contact as Campbell told Miss Rogers that she asked too many questions. They had been emailing and telephoning frequently from May to October. Now, this May to October, this is where he's planning his marriage and being married to Janet. And he's sick of Miss Rogers. You're asking too many questions. You're going to have to go. Okay, so you can see from these times and dates that Campbell is not committed to be in a monogamous relationship with Janet. The women he was, was with, he was only interested in what they could do for him, financially or sexually. And if he didn't get his own way, he became abusive. Now, Campbell would be described by Janet's family as a gold digger and a rogue. That's putting it fucking nicely. Okay, so now we've got the background to all this story, the women, his, what he does when he gets a job, the whole deal. Let's get into what this case is all about. On the 28th of January 2005, Campbell purchased a two-person dome tent and an Alpine camper sleeping bag from a Kmart store in Fig Tree. I reckon that that sleeping bag would have been a beauty from Kmart. On the morning of the 24th of March 2005, Janet spoke to her mother on the telephone and told her that she and Campbell were going camping about five kilometres from their home. Now, this would be the last time they would ever speak. Campbell didn't take his mobile phone because he reckoned he couldn't get service at the campground although it would be found that plenty of other people could. Instead, he'd purchased an EPIRB emergency beacon on the 23rd of February 2005 from Dick Smith, Moore Park. Now, Campbell told police that he took this EPIRB on the day because when he first moved to Otford, he went for a walk along the cliff track along the bottom of the escarpment and thought it was really hairy. Now, the next week he saw these things on sale and thought he'd buy one. Now, Campbell and Janet drove to the Otford Lookout car park and arrived at about lunchtime. So, Campbell already knows this is a really dangerous area to be. He's actually got an EPIRB and he's not going to take his mobile phone even though you can get service there. So, Campbell and Janet, they drove to the Offord Lookout car park and arrived at about lunchtime. They walked from the Offord Lookout along the cliff top track until they came to the junction with the coastal track. They followed the coastal track down through the Palm Jungle until they came to a general vicinity of the figure eight pool. At around 2pm, they set up their tent near some small trees where there wasn't too much grass and a, there was a small clearing. Now, this wasn't a designated camping site. In fact, there were signs saying no camping and advising that a camping permit was needed. Now, Campbell didn't have a permit. There were camping areas at North Era Beach, Ulula Falls, and a trial location at what is now known, known as Guatemala. In fact, no one would want to camp there where he chose, as it was on a slope It was rocky and uncomfortable. Now, at the campsite, they ate food, drank tea and coffee, and they had a small amount of Baileys and lay around the tent. Now, according to Campbell, at around 7 p.m. after sunset, Janet got up and said she was going to the toilet. Now, as she walked off without a torch, Campbell told her to not go in that direction as he had already taken a dump there earlier. Then about 15 seconds later, he says that he heard a sound like, ooh, he yelled out, what the fuck have you done? And there was no reply. Campbell said, then he got out and had a look around, got out of the tent and had a look around, but he couldn't see Janet. He grabbed his backpack and found his way to the bottom of the cliff. He found Janet at the bottom of the cliff adjacent to their campsite. She was in a sitting position a short distance from the bottom of the cliff. A lot of blood splatter was on the rocks a number of metres from Janet towards the cliff face. Campbell pulled Janet's body up onto a flat rock and checked her pulse. He performed CPR but he knew she was dead. She was bleeding from the head and one eye was closed. Campbell said there was a huge swell which meant he had to drag Janet onto higher rocks so she wouldn't be swept away. He said she was pretty heavy and it was pretty difficult. He put his jacket over her and set off his EPIRB sometime before 8 p.m. So the ER, EPIRB was first detected by a satellite beacon between 7.25 and 7.35 p.m. Rescue helicopter was dispatched and arrived just before 10 p.m. at the location in Otford. Now I think it took a little bit of time because they thought it was somebody at sea, not on the beach. When the paramedics were the paramedic was winched down from the helicopter he could see Janet wedged between some rocks in amongst the waves so he couldn't attempt a retrieval he saw Campbell standing on some rocks a few feet away so Campbell was winched into the helicopter and flown to St George Hospital and a second helicopter rescue mission retrieved Janet's body an autopsy would show that Janet had a point 0 zero two level of alcohol in a bloodstream and no other drugs that would cause her in any impairment zero point two means you might have had one drink or like they said a small bit of bailey's in the hour or two hours ago now campbell looked in shock and at times he was crying now this was according to police rescue staff and hospital workers When investigators checked out the area where Janet had fallen from, they found it was steep just before the cliff edge, steep like the roof of a house, if you're trying to stand up on a roof of a standard sort of house, and they said it was also rocky, so you could easily trip. They found footprints belonging to Janet, and blood and human tissue were at several points down the cliff. So, at first, this wasn't a criminal investigation, but as time went on, suspicions arose, that maybe Campbell pushed Janet over the cliff. On the 26th of March, less than two days after Janet fell over the cliff and died, Campbell was texting his old flame, Mrs. V, with the intent of hooking up, and the next day he went to Harvey World Travel, inquiring about a trip for two to Asia. Now, Miss V, she didn't know anything was going on. Miss V was asked by Campbell if she had a passport and wanted to fly out for a holiday. Now, she said she could only take a few days off, so Campbell booked a trip to Townsville instead for the two of them, telling the agent he would be travelling with his wife. Now, this is is like virtually one day after she's fallen off the cliff. He's doing this. On the 27th of March, 2005, at 8.20pm, a call was made from Janet's mobile to vote... On the show X Factor. So he's he's quite happy. This is three days after. He's sitting back, relax, relaxing, w- watching a bit of X Factor. Hey, her phone's here. I'll use that to vote on the X Factor. <sighs> That's not all. We keep going. On the 31st of March, Neil, this is Campbell's brother, he'd found out about Janet's death. When he received messages of condolence on his phone, which used to belong to Campbell, after reading these messages, he went on the internet and found out about her death. So he hasn't even told his brother about his wife's death. I mean, he he was given this phone. Obviously, one of these woman women bought him a new phone, so he just went here. Have my old phone, and all of a sudden it's oh, sad for your loss, sad for your loss. He's going, oh, what the hell's going on? So he doesn't even tell his brother. I mean, he kept everything secret, this guy. He told them, don't say anything. With all of these women, don't say anything. He's got to not let his worlds collide. Anyway, that's not all. It still goes. On the 1st of April, 2005, Campbell and Miss V went away to Townsville. Now in Townsville, they went to bars, restaurants, the beach, on car trips and to lookouts. Great place to go. Townsville now they had sex during this time however they had a fight on the 4th of April so that's a couple of days into this holiday Campbell packed his bags and took off now isn't this a recurring theme he just gets the shits and goes on the 5th of April so this is the next day 2005 Campbell made a payment to the dating site RSVP to hook up with other profiles on the site Now, on the 5th, the 7th, the 8th, the 11th and the 12th, Campbell's RSVP account communicated with several other RSVP accounts. Now, guess what else was on the 5th of April? It was Janet's funeral and Campbell didn't go. He didn't even go to Janet's funeral. I mean, what the fuck? On the 10th of April 2005, Miss V went to Campbell's house in Otford to drop off presents. She had brought him in Townsville. Campbell told her he had a singles party that night. Hey, I'm going to a singles party. So wait for me back at the house. Now, when he arrived at the Otford residence that night, guess what? This person, he leaves up in Townsville. He he packs his bags and goes. He has fights with. He proposes to her and asks her to move in with me. Hey, move in with me, babe. Now, Miss V stayed for a few weeks at this Otford residence. She saw no female clothes or toiletries or any sign that anyone else had recently lived there. Now, she once discovered a rates notice in the names Des and Janet Campbell, as well as a wedding card. Now, Campbell found her reading this card and became very angry and yelled at her. However, Campbell convinced her that he was not married and told her that if the police ever contacted her... She should deny knowing him. These big red lights, people, they're flashing. Why are you hanging out with this guy? (laughs) (laughs) It's just crazy. Oh, yeah, you know, if the police ever ask you anything about me, just say, I don't know that bloke. Jesus. Then the neighbor noticed Campbell burning shit in in the backyard. Now, what I think this is, is Janet's belongings. Because no matter how hard the family tried to get their get her stuff back, Campbell refused. Now, they ended up getting a very small box of her things via a solicitor. I mean, they turned up one day. He closed all the blinds, locked all the doors. He called the cops on them, and they were able to at least get the keys to her car. The cop has got the keys to her car, and they were able to get her car out. This guy's crazy. <laughs> Everything's crazy in this story, in this case. Now, in the month after Janet's death, Campbell was in contact with several other women. There was 12 phone calls and 54 text messages to Miss V, V, 30 text messages to Miss R, Miss Rogers, three text messages to Miss Aldred. So he's getting himself around after this horrible death of his wife. Then on April the 20th, he signed an agreement with a real estate agency to sell this house. He did sell it and he got $100,000 less than Janet paid for it. Now, this was actually part of her estate at this this time, which would mostly go to her son, Stephen. But as I said before, he transferred a lot of the funds into his own bank account. Now, because Janet had ploughed so much money into the house already... He just wanted a quick sale, so he took the first lowball offer, knowing once the bank got their cut, he would still have maybe 100000 or more left over for himself. Now, this guy is a real prick. By August, police would search his house, so they're starting to think, what's going on with this bloke? On his computer, there were plenty of photos they found of family and friends, but there was not one of his dear departed wife Janet not one photo of her on there there was all these holidays photos with all these women he went out Townsville and all that not one of Janet now there would be an inquiry into Janet's death and it would be found that Janet was pushed she didn't stumble over the edge in the dark so things are starting to happen here now the footprints at the edge were shown to be not from someone walking and then tripping or sliding over the edge but from someone who was being forced over the cliff and was desperately trying to dig, not so much dig the healing, but trying to resist. <laughs> now, they've got people who actually know this thing, biomechanics on the way the footprint was in the dirt was if you're pushing against it this way or you're, you're slipping or whatever. And they worked out that it was most likely that someone had grabbed her and was pushing her down the slope and over the cliff. So, eventually, there was enough evidence to charge Des Campbell over the death of Janet Fisicaro. Now, I'll use her name rather than the name Campbell, which she was married at the time to Campbell. In May 2010, Des Campbell would be found guilty of murdering Janet. He was sentenced to 33 years behind bars with a non-parole period of 24 years. Justice Megan Latham said Campbell's wife of six months, Janet, had died in a strange place far from her family, her friends, and her community. He'd shown no remorse or contrition that could have counted in his favour in consideration of the length of sentence, and that he took the life of a naive, middle aged countrywoman whom he manipulated and deceived. So there you go, Islanders. What a fucking piece of shit couldn't afford the life he wanted by earning it himself he just used vulnerable women to either be the bankroll for his lifestyle or be part of his bullshit player life and i could go on and on even more but this would end up being a multiple multiple episode of episodes but i'm sure with the detail i gave you get the drift on what an asshole this prick is parole comes up in 2034 but he's shown absolutely no remorse for what he did so i hope they never let him out he still says he didn't do it so hopefully he's not going to get out condolences to janet's family and friends and to all the women who were touched by him and there were many many more than made this episode and a big shout out to the islander who let me know about this case Alright, so that's the end of the show. It was a long one. We're into 50 odd minutes And like I said if I'd actually gone into more and more detail, which I could have We would have just gone on hours and hours on what a prick this guy was Anyway, let's get down to the Patreon. Thanks to all my past and present and new patrons Your financial support does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all So no annoying ads for undies or food delivery or shit like that and all my content is available for everyone, no matter if you can donate or not, especially in these these times, these hard times. And thanks this week to Deborah Roster. Thank you all so much. Like I said, all my patrons, it's very appreciated. If you want to help out the island, you can go to patreon.com forward slash True Crime Island. But if you don't like the monthly thing, you just want to donate me a beer or something like that, PayPal. That link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. And thanks again to Greg, Greg Hat. Thanks, mate. So, like I said before, support yourself before you support the island. I know times are tough at the moment, but uh, and the island will be here for a while. I have merch also. That's another way to support the island. I've got a Threadless store and a Redbubble now. I've updated my website, so the best way to get there is to get the link on my website, truecrimeisland.com. There's, it's called Contact and Merch Link, and that'll give you links to everything. If you have any problems with any of the merch you ever buy, just let them know, of course, first. But also let me know, so I can sort it out. The hot pink logo promo shirts, they should have all shipped. I know some people have got got them, and they've put their photos up on the on Instagram and Facebook it's, they look great uh, I haven't got mine yet but mine's shipping from the US it looks like so it might take a bit longer but please look out for them in the mail and thanks again to all who picked one up now what I was thinking we maybe need a fan art version of a shirt in the coming months and I'm also looking at doing new koozies the koozies went off great so if you have any ideas maybe email them through and you'll get end up with a free whatever t-shirt or a koozie on the website there's also links to my facebook and twitter you can also support the show by rating and reviewing also by sharing with your friends and family that's a great way to support the show get more people involved please feel free to check out my youtube channel and subscribe there again there's a giveaway at 1000 subs so a bit more vot- motivation to have a look and thanks to all those who have subbed and if you do sub please watch the videos that'd be great i also there's a special clip there now where you want to enter you just put a comment in there what we'll get we'll get kate to pick out one of the names out of that comment section and in the comment section leave some comments if you like what you want to see or what you think so please feel free to comment subscribe and get notifications hit that little bell thing I've got a link to that also on my website. If you want to contact me directly, the best way, honestly, is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. All the other ways are so difficult for me to go back over and search for what you've told me if required. Okay, tonight, before we go, we do have a promo this week from my mate Eamon down at the Melbourne Marvels podcast. You'll hear it at the end. So have a listen to that before you go. All right. Okay, that's about it. I've been rambling and rambling. So it's about time I left. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom lunga.
1: 21st of October 1978, 20 year old Frederick Valentich is flying a Cessna 182L light aeroplane from Morabin Airport to King Island. Not long after commencing the overwater section of the flight, between Cape Otway and King Island, Valentich reports to the air traffic controller seeing a craft with four bright lights passing over his plane. The unusual craft returns and Valentich reports it behaving strangely by playing some sort of game with him, and travelling at such high speeds he could not identify how fast. Valentich reports that the craft is a long shape and has green lights. The conversation lasts 6 minutes before he declares that the object is not an aircraft. Suddenly all radio contact with Valentich's aircraft is lost and he and his Cessna disappear never to be heard from again. Despite a massive rescue operation, no evidence is found that would suggest what happened to Valentich or his plane. My name is Eamon. Join me at my podcast Melbourne Marvels as I explore the formerly classified government files on the strange disappearance of Frederick Valentich in recognition of the National Missing Persons Week 2020.